The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Energy Vampire Edition. It's Wednesday, April 10th, 2019. On today's show, Diane, I can't hide it. I won't hide it. I'm just going to say it is a remarkable film. I loved it. A huge heart in a small and quiet package. Somehow fine-boned and big-boned at once. I can't help it. I just love the movie. It was filled with intelligence, wit, empathy, humanness, at the center of which is the simple, beautiful truth of Mary Kay Place in the title role. Julia, are you laughing at my enthusiasms? <laughs> we don't need a segment like anymore. Same. We're done. <laughs> yeah, okay. I love this movie. Um, I haven't liked something. I, God, if you don't like this movie, you're dead to me. No, I'm so excited to talk about it. I just usually we reserve it for the segment, but I'm glad to have your preamble. I'm so, all right, all right. The powder is wet. I can't <laughs> help it. And then what we do in the shadows is a vampire sitcom on FX. And finally, Billie Eilish, Dana will explain to me why we're doing a segment on this. She endorsed this uh, singer, uh, and we got a lot of mail in response. My kids listen to Billie Eilish. I like Billie Eilish, but still, I'd like someone to offer a critical perspective on it. Um, so we will discuss. Joining me today is uh, Fistlate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Stephen. Welcome back. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to be back. And um, Julia Turner is the deputy managing editor of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello. Hey. Is it great for me to be back or no? <laughs> <laughs> I'm too busy looking at Billie Eilish's Instagram to be overly concerned with the matter. But yes, it's great to have you back. <laughs> I can tell. There's passing the Bechdel test, there's acing it, and then there's Diane. The strange capacity of the motion picture camera to be both totally true and totally untrue to life uh, has always been one of its strangest features. At one extreme, you have the Marvel Cinematic Universe. At the other end, you have Diane. And uh, they're both miracles in a way, but it just feels as though a movie like this is something of a rarity these days. Diane is a late middle-aged woman. She's a widow, mother, confidant, helper. She's struggling internally with remorse, as we learn, while acting as a quiet, unobtrusive pillar to her community. The movie, I'm going to say two things very quickly struck me about the movie. First of all, it's just unusual to see a movie about that period that separates late middle age from being elderly. She's, I think, in that period of life transition. And secondly, it, the movie has a sort of thesis, though it's shown, not told, which is that such women, women like Diane of all ages, form the social fabric of a community, or at least the community in this motion picture. Anyway, we'll discuss more at length, but let's listen to a clip. Brian. You just let me put myself together. Brian, you need to listen to me. You've been saying that you're sick with bronchitis for five weeks now, and I just don't believe you. Well, if you don't believe me, that's your right. I went out at night, and I forgot a jacket, but you don't believe me. Sweetie, you've got to go back to the clinic. What? You think it's that? Yes. After everything that we've been through, and that you think I could let you in the eye and lie about that? How could you even think that? Honey. It just kills me. It kills me. Because it means that, you know, I've lost your trust. It means that you don't trust me, even after we talked everything through. Brian. I need you to know how awful it is for me to think you think that I could ever do that again. Please. Please what? Stop doing something I'm not doing? What can I say? Don't come near me. I don't want to get you sick. Even if you don't believe me. Oh, what about her? If, If you're sick, why is she here? She's sick too. She's sick too, mom. 
All right, Dana, I, I, I should have said this is a very mildly plotted movie, but it's not unplotted. She, Diane, has a son who's a drug abuser. She's trying to save him, rescue him, as you hear in the clip. She also has a cousin who's dying, which forms sort of a little bit of the backbone of the film. But uh, you're the film critic. Let me start with you. What did you, what did you think about Diane? Oh, I loved it too. I mean, I feel like you've taken you've taken I'm all so of my sorry. superlatives away. <laughs> I just loved I loved it. I was I was so lonely watching this movie on a flight delay in the middle of Spain, and I just it made me feel so good. That's a good plane movie, I have to say. Well, okay, just a couple things left out of your intro before we get into the movie itself that I think are important to note. This is a debut film, which is pretty incredible. It's the first narrative feature, anyway, of Kent Jones, the writer director, who is a film critic. So of course, I'm I'm cavelling just about that. He is mainly known now as the director of the New York Film Festival, but Kent Jones has been writing criticism his entire career and another inspiring fact, he's 58 years old. So, you know, not not as not in the in the category as you were saying of middle age going into old age, but for a first time debut feature filmmaker, that is on the older side and that is inspiring to me as well. So, there's a lot in this movie that's outside the realm of what we usually see on screen, not just the heroine and as you say the fact that she lives in this world of women, essentially there's only one important male character and we heard him in that clip, her her son played by Jake Lacey who is a drug addict that she's trying to pull out of addiction single-handedly as you can hear without much success. Um, but but it's not just the fact that it's this gynocentric universe it takes place in. It's also a small town. It's filmed mm-hmm. in upstate New York, I believe, but it's set in uh, Massachusetts, so, rural Massachusetts. Yeah, so familiar. I mean, so I, familiar. I, if you've I, driven in the Berkshires at all, all those like those little towns she drives between and driving is a big part of this movie yeah. are are things places that you never see on film, but that feel so lived in and familiar in the world. And also the last thing I'll get into that's unusual about this movie, and maybe Julia can comment on this as well, is that it stylistically and tonally goes to completely unexpected places. There's something really courageous about it formally because it starts as something that you might recognize, right? That's kind of like a an indie, um, hyper-realist sort of movie, no background music. Later on, a little bit starts to creep in, but, you know, just sort of the actual sound of the places that you are and very naturalistic overlapping dialogue, that kind of world. And then toward the end, uh, as we get deeper and deeper into the psyche of this character, Diane, that Mary Kay plays, plays, there's these dream sequences that you mm-hmm. aren't quite sure are dream sequences, and, and there's some yeah. voiceover that comes in, and just suddenly things are happening formally and technically that weren't happening earlier in the movie, and yet it doesn't sort of feel like veering off a, a cliff. It, it all feels like it's sort of organically grown into that place, and I loved that about the movie, too. I love that you love this movie. You're alive to me. Julia, <laughs> tell me what you <laughs> That's a, <laughs> Break that's my a heart. high what? stake setup. That's we need we need at least a symbolic I, grain of criticism from Julia of the movie. No, no, I also loved this movie. My God, people should see this movie. It's so beautiful and interesting. And it, one one film it reminded me of um, was Leave No Trace in a strange way. Yep. In that, yeah. I remember having the experience watching that movie of just thinking, "Gosh, no one ever trains their camera on." camping like you just don't get to like camping is not considered high cinema or a cinematic experience or something that's very fun to poke your uh, movie lens at and I had the same feeling about this world although it's set in a very different world because it's set in New England because they talk about towns like Westover and Lynn and places that were you know in the in the echoes and reaches of my childhood driving around Massachusetts and because of the amazing locations they find, these houses that are so particularly New England. Um, It just feels like it's looking at this world of late middle-aged women trading casserole cans and trying to help each other and 
keeping track of each other's family's ailments and keeping track of each other, really. Uh, it's not it's not like ladies in gowns pulling off heists, you know? It's just a different kind of female experience than we typically see on film. It is largely female. And Mary Place's performance in it is beautiful and heartbreaking. And just because she's a kind older lady doesn't mean she's a sap or a simp or a saint. Uh, and we get to see her sins and her anger and her guilt and her rage and it's all under this very quiet surface and then fundamentally we get to see her loneliness and the loneliness of having everyone you love die which happens and isn't also something that American cinema loves to contemplate it's not as fun as a gem heist in a gown Mm -hmm. Um, but it's so beautiful and so uh I don't know, exciting. I did think that some of the formal experiments that the film begins to uh, attempt towards its end are largely successful, but but um, a couple of them felt a little over overwrought or overplayed in, in the context of the quietness of and realism of the rest of the film. I, it's not that I wouldn't have wanted it to do any of them. It just felt... Uh, I was so along for the ride. I was like, okay, okay, yeah, 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 sure, sure. And then by the end, I was like, ooh, did you twist it a notch too far? I'm curious but, which um, ones were a notch too far, but but I don't want you to, to say it if it's going to spoil it for listeners. It, it will spoil it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the, the last one. It's the one <laughs> that I wondered about. Um, but, and I won't say more than that. But but again, those are, those are tiny, tiny uh things to point out in a movie that just feels so radical for looking somewhere else mm-hmm. and so compressed i mean it's i think 96 minutes yep, it covers probably half a decade at least um and p- stitches together this world so persuasively it's it you you can't quite there's a bunch of different late middle-aged women with different ailments or re- relations with ailments and takes you a minute to sort of get all the stories and connections straight and it's not particularly explicit about explaining them to you but what happens is you first see this web of interconnection and caring and then the constituent nodes become clear to you and um it 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 just works I have to shout out the acting of one of those nodes, which is Estelle Parsons, the incredible Estelle Parsons, who plays an elderly relative of of Diane's, who just absolutely kills. I mean, there's just a there's a real ensemble quality to this movie. It's not sort of like, here's the star doing her show and then here's the supporting actress doing her thing. It's like there's sort of these scenes of a bunch of older family members sitting around a table telling stories that you sort of half understand because they're relying on all these old in-jokes. And meanwhile, the younger people are floating in and out, grabbing food off the table, right? Sort of taking things and going away. And without being explicit about it at all, this is really a a meditation on generations, right? Mm -hmm. And what one generation takes from the next. And the whole idea that love runs downhill, right? I mean, all these thankless kids are getting the benefit of the love of these older people, whether they appreciate it verbally or not. Yeah, and and, and and the the movie's not at all mawkish about the elegy that it's it's offering for this face to face kind of interaction that these kids presumably it's not didactic about the fact that the kids aren't having it. It's just the fact of life the kids aren't having it and who knows whether they will once this generation is gone. You know, with all the extraordinary women in this movie, I also just want to mention that Jake Lacey as the son also completely kills it in a role that could easily have been a junkie standard 
issue role that we're all very familiar with. And it was especially surprising to me at the end in the credits to see that it was Jake Lacey, who I know primarily as the sweet romantic interest in The Obvious Child opposite Jenny Slate, the sweet romantic interest in Girls opposite Lena Dunham. He's like the guy who plays the nice guy who's not, you know, bad boy enough to keep anyone's attention kind of thing. And here he's playing just the opposite, right? Somebody who will just call his mother the C word, you know, in the throes of his addiction. Just a really unlikable, but also extremely Extremely poignant character. Yes. So, so go Jake Lacey. Well, right, and also because he he didn't do the you know my drug addiction is motivated by my love of drugs performance. He did a my drug addiction is motivated by my anger at my mother, and that anger is so integral to her remorse. And the movie, as it proceeds, coalesces around you discovering what that remorse is, and therefore what that anger is, and therefore why he's on drugs. And he seemed, as a actor, as an artist, he seemed conscious of that being his important contribution to the whole of the movie, right? right? As opposed to like doing like fake DTs and and that kind of thing, he avoided that completely. So yeah, agree. Um, another shout out I think is totally necessary is the I hate to admit the forgotten or half forgotten Andrea Martin, one of my favorites. I mean, it is amazing the fruit that the tree of Second City TV has borne over the decades. I mean, Harold Ramis, uh, Eugene Levy. Catherine O'Hara. Catherine O'Hara, John Candy, and uh, and Andrea Martin. I, I can't, I don't know if I can tell you what she's been doing since I first started watching SCTV in 1978 on WOR at one in the morning in New York City. Um, and that's shame on me, but I think that the, the, her, like her performance in this movie is amazing. I mean, she's just, yet, not, and yet it doesn't really, I mean, n- none of the movies about anybody having a performance that stands out. Everyone is just a completely, you know, is just doing such dignified work. No one, you know, I, I don't know. Anyway, I, and when one thing I want to say very quickly is that is that, as if I understand correctly, Mary Kay Place has never been the star of a movie before. She's always been a supporting or ensemble player in everything she's done, and she's at this age handed a movie, and which was written for her apparently. It was written specifically with her in mind, and she's in almost every scene, if not every scene, and she's amazing. I mean, she's just amazing. I mean, it just makes you think over and over again how film acting is maybe the last i mean it's just such a repository of artistic truth telling in our culture and we take it for granted because well, it it's so naturalistic think- right and and yet that woman on that screen is telling the truth over and over and over and over again i actually had gotten to know andrea martin's work a little bit lately because i had been watching great news which is a mediocre show on netflix um that was made by tina fey's uh, production company uh, about a broadcast nightly news program in New Jersey, and she plays the very involved mother of the protagonist wannabe news producer. Um, And I liked seeing her in a slightly more serious, less comic role in a far, far better production here. Um, But yeah, I, I, I mean, I get that this is something we all know, and that is perhaps boring to say at this point. But you know, we've been lamenting for years, oh, there's no roles for women over 40. And oh, you know, Hollywood, they just want the girl to be the bombshell. And oh, it's all starlets, and then you die. Uh, Those complaints feel tired and cliched at this point. Then you see a performance like this, and you think about it in the context of, you know, two or three years worth of coming to understand that the largely men 
who decided what movies got made and whose stories got told didn't exactly have the most uh, progressive or fully rounded view of womanhood and what it was and what kind of stories might be interesting. And you just realize how much we've been robbed of yeah. art that should exist uh, uh, that tells stories that matter and allows for performances like this. And it makes you want to throw a knife into the wall. Like it, it, it it's a crime that this is Mary Kay Place's first starring role. Right. It's and absolutely you think criminal. That, There's nothing the, she's doing in this movie that Meryl Streep, uh, you know what I mean? Like it, it's it's an mm-hmm. astonishing, astonishing performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you told me that, in fact, it was Mary Kay Place who'd gotten more Oscar nominations than anybody else and who was the sort of person when you said her name, everyone tut-tutted and thought, oh, yes, of course, good acting personified. That's her. Like, yeah, sure. I would 100% believe that. And the fact that this is only now coming to pass uh, it just strikes me as as like theft, theft of all of the cinematic experiences we could have had. Mm, more counterfactual ghosts. But did you all notice, because Julia mentioned death and the fact that this is in many ways a movie about people getting ready for their loved ones to die and for themselves to die about mortality. Did you notice that the temporal structure is completely Wolfian? Stephen, I thought of you. Um, I think you're a big Virginia Woolf reader, right? Oh, I mean, my God, you yes. know, Into the Lighthouse, right? The way that the temporal shifts happen so quickly and confusingly that somebody who you thought, you know, was a was a young or middle-aged person has suddenly died years before and you have the sense of temporal temporal slippage. I feel like this movie handles time in a very similar way. There's a moment she sits down with her son to a meal at a diner and you think his hair is so much longer than last time we saw him and you realize, "Oh, well, that's cuz years have gone by, right? And he's he's gotten off drugs or whatever." But the way that those temporal shifts are noted has an almost wolfian kind of slippery quality to it. I love that. Yeah, that's that's great. I I hadn't thought a lot about that but definitely that's there all right the movie is diane and um we all three agree um you should seek it out um you should watch it it's an amazing performance amazing script understated gem should we all just stipulate from now on too that every film critic if they were to make a movie it would just be that good (laughs) (laughs) give me the budget hand it over Just like I imagine how enraging for every filmmaker who's like, ugh, stupid critics, those who <laughs> those who can't, blah, blah, blah. And Actually, like, yeah, well, Ken Jones has an answer to all the hecklers on Twitter who say, like, ooh, if you know so much about movies, why don't you make one yourself? That's hilarious. <laughs> I'm just what, gonna stipulate in my mind that Dana's film, feature film would be at least that good. <laughs> I want what what's the name of the final Avengers movie that's coming to squat on all of us? Endgame. 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 Directed by Dana Stevens. <laughs> <laughs> we went outside the box here, people. You know what? The fans would be mad about that, and they would be correct. <laughs> they, should, they should not hire you, Dana, with your errant disregard for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Delivering fan service to the philosophers. <laughs> oh, dear. All right, moving on. Uh, before we go any further, I imagine this is where we insert some business. Does uh, Who has some? I got some business. Uh, here it is. We want to talk about Slate Day, which is something we've been talking up on the show the last few weeks. Uh, on Saturday, June the 8th, Slate will be in the Chelsea Market Passage on the High Line and also in the SVA Theater in Chelsea. We're going to have a day of live podcasts, energetic conversations, and fun experiences. You can start with a brunch show with the host from Outward and the Waves. 
Then you can put your pop culture knowledge to the test with a trivia team featuring Slate's culture writers and editors. I know that me and Melanfi, Chris Melanfi, are going to be part of that trivia table thing. You can also go behind the scenes of art with Studio 360, politics with Trumpcast, and culture with Decoder Ring. And you can come see us. We're doing a live Culture Gab Fest on the High Line. It's going to be just me and Steve, unfortunately, because tragically, Julia cannot make it for that show. But we will find a guest so fabulous that you will hopefully be able to heal from Julia's absence. You can come for the whole day with an all-access pass, or you can just grab tickets for your favorite show. Either way, we can't wait to see you on June 8th at Slate Day. For tickets and more information, go to slate.com slash live. And finally, in Slate Plus today, we are going to talk about Steve's trip to Spain. He just got back from a, an emergency travel writing trip. I, I get the impression, Steve, that you got called up at the last second and told, off to Galicia, you must go, and you had to throw things into a suitcase. I pictured it that being that dramatic. You traveled up the northwestern coast of Spain, uh, the area called Galicia, mm-hmm. which uh, I have some familiarity with as well, having traveled there. I don't know what Julia's past with it is, but we are going to talk about that trip and about Spain. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, you can sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program, which is a great way to support the magazine. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest, and in return, you will get extended ad-free versions of this show and all your other favorite Slate shows. So if you want to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. All right, Stephen, what's next? All right. Well, the well-worn tropes of sitcom land, bickering, mismatched nerd roommates come together with the well-worn tropes of the vampire genre, eternal life, no mirrors or daylight, search for virgin blood. And they come together in What We Do in the Shadows, which is a sitcom now on FX. It's based on a New Zealand mockumentary that achieved cult status, mostly as I understand it, over the internet. But remade as a sitcom, is it tired or wired? It's very funny. Let's listen to a clip. This is my office also known as the hunting ground. Hi, Deb. Energy vampires drain people's energy merely by talking to them. Actual versus budget year to date? No thanks. You're going to be at that all day. We either bore you with a long conversation. Feeling better now. I was a little sick this weekend. Hey, Don. Don. I have to pee, too. Or we enrage you. In fact, you probably know an energy vampire. We're the most common kind of vampire. We are day walkers, not affected by the sun. And we are the only kind of vampire that can drain another vampire's energy. It's very cool. The power grows stronger in him by the night. Julia, what did you make of this show? Oh, I think I have a serious case of like 2019 TV blindness. I need your help. I need, I'm, I'm, I, uh, what is the metaphor? I feel desensitized to potential inklings of television quality. Once again, I feel like for the 10th week in a row, I'm like, Hey, this show, it has uh, smart auspices. Look, it's the latest from Taika Waititi and Jermaine Clement, people whose art I love. Oh, my gosh, there's a cameo by Beanie Feldstein, one of the most promising young comic actresses around. Wow, the concept of an energy vampire and a hilarious performance that goes along with it. Uh, it's it's extending the vampire idea in comical fashion beyond the realms of Buffy and Twilight. Uh, hey, some of these jokes are funny. They're making me laugh. 
And yet I cannot mm. bring myself to give a shit about this show. I don't know why. I feel like if this show had descended upon me in a bleaker TV time, I would have marveled at it. I feel um, like a, I, I don't know, a, a profligate idiot sitting at the end of a cornucopia horn of TV that I should not be taken for granted. And I just can't. I've just had too many grapes and gourds and I can't have another one. I feel overstuffed. Help! <laughs> I, God, I hate to say that's exactly how I feel, but but I just want to. I'm going to turn to Dana, but I just want to say something really quickly. Like throw another name on that pile, Paul Sims, who's been, you know, the news genius behind news radio, uh, contributor to Larry Sanders, and you find his name on so many funny things. Atlanta, he's done work for Atlanta. If his name on it is on it, it's funny. And this is funny, and it's funny in the way that news radio is funny. Like Paul Sims is a, is a television auteur genius. I don't think I give a shit about this show either. But Dana, we'll throw it to you. Well, I feel like the lead has been buried and that this show is the spinoff of a movie made by Taika Waititi and starring Taika Waititi and Jermaine Clement, um, something that they made together as a kind of lark in, in New Zealand in 2014 called What We Do in the Shadows. So essentially, they're spinning out the idea of their own movie into a show. So at the at the heart of this show, which may account for your sense of, gee, it's funny, but why, is the fact that it is something of a why project that by YTT's own admission, it's now that he's you know known as the director of Thor Ragnarok and is this kind of superstar director, he was apparently approached by you know television executives saying, give us a movie, give us a movie about this. And that and that isn't to say that it isn't being made with, with love and care. I think it is. Um, but it doesn't have the same DIY, insane energy of the What We Do in the Shadows movie with Taika Waititi and, and Jermaine Clement, which really did feel like you know, these were two guys who had met in college and, you know, were sort of putting together a, a, a world of funniness between the two of them. So in that sense, I think you might be, you know, I think that this show is an energy vampire in a way that it's sucking some of the energy from that <laughs> oh. original movie. Um, that said, I think I would I would keep watching the show again, as Julia says, if I was not inundated with it with an endless array of, of possible shows to watch. It made me think at times of Flight of the Concords, the wonderful show about two musicians starring co-starring Jemaine Clement from a few years ago. But of course, Flight of the Concords did exist in a completely different TV world where there weren't other offerings that were that unusual and strange. And it also had musical offerings, which which this show so far doesn't. I hope it gets into some musical numbers at some point because I think it would lend itself to that. But there's a kind of grisly playfulness to this show that that I quite enjoy. I'm curious to see what happens with the Beanie Feldstein character that Julia mentioned, who is a, a young virgin that they're trying to hunt for her special virgin blood. And we know that she's a virgin because she's a LARPer. <laughs> she engages in live action role play with a bunch of guys who clearly are not getting any action, nor is she. And, uh, and the moment that she transforms into a vampire is a moment that I felt that the show might start to go to some new and interesting places. Totally agree. Totally. That was the one thing that really grabbed me was her, her her story. I come back over and over and over again to how good TV is and how that grading on that curve is really hard on things that are brilliantly crafted by professionals who can deliver the show, right? Like they can just deliver a sitcom and it's fucking, it's funny. Like this show is funny. And, yeah, uh, the joke density is quite high, we should say, right? There's visual gags, there's stuff going on in the background. Like, there's a lot of work put into making this as funny as possible moment by moment. So the added ingredient to, to stand out in the crowd now is, and this is a banal word and I'm sure that there's a better one, but topic, topicality isn't quite it. But 
a kind of thematic urgency. Like The Good Place is about something, in addition to being joke dense and really funny and original, right? I mean, but but it's also about like, are we are we wicked or are we good? And like, what's the difference between these two things? And it does things you haven't seen in the medium before in order to get at this, like it's a driven by an idea, not just the compulsion to make more content. And and the problem with TV now is that the, that, that the, there's a business reason, a business compulsion behind making more and more content. And there's an unbelievably deep field of talent, both performatively writing and directing. So it's all going to be good. And so good isn't enough anymore, which is just an astonishing thing to say about this medium that when we grew up, you know, was was really considered a haven for, you know, self-serving hypocritical mediocrity, right? And it's just, that's just weird. But that's sort of where we're at, which is that you feel as though somebody behind it has to have said, like, you know why Glover is making Atlanta, right? Like, there's something, you know, we have never seen, you know, about hip-hop culture in Atlanta and that part of the world and a young black man's struggle in that world. Like, that show is about something. And that it's that, if you don't feel that urgency, the likelihood that mere excellence and craft is going to get you to go back to it is just kind of low, really. And I just feel, I, I mean, I, I just, like, I am not trying to run down the show. The show is so smart, and Paul Sims really, literally, is one of my television heroes. And since news radio, I'm determined to watch anything that he puts his name on. And this is just—it's more Paul Sims, so I'll, I'll watch it. But, but yeah, I think, I think that for me, that's where the lack of lack of urgency is coming from. That's so interesting, Steve. I think you've put your finger on something. Like if, and especially in comedy, right? It's a little bit easier, probably, for dramas to be "quote unquote" about something. And with comedy, you know, the finely calibrated joke machine, the Thirty Rock type show. Although I think you could argue actually that Thirty Rock was about sort of corporations and media in ways that were beyond just goofy jokes and japes. But the jokes and japes part of it ranked pretty high. Um, but it's an interesting moment right now for TV comedy where you, in order to rise above, you do want to achieve the level of the good place. And I think that's a perfect example. Uh, and figuring out what does that and how and how beyond just being funny you break through feels like an interesting puzzle. Right. Yeah. All right. A, a begrudging meh to the show. <laughs> an undeserved all, meh. Oh, man. We all energy vampired one another on that segment. All right, well, it's What We Do in the Shadows. It's on FX. I wonder if this is one where we might get some pushback from some of our listeners. So find us on Twitter or email or whatever. Let us know we're wrong. Don't say I didn't want you. All the good girls go to hell. I have a long, beautifully crafted introduction to segment three. It goes like this. Billie Eilish? Question mark? <laughs> this is what we miss when you're away, Steve, is your, your, your rigor. Yeah. <laughs> and rigor. <laughs> I mean, I too, I had, of the three segments, two had pre-written mostly introductions. I mean, okay, because I endorsed yeah, Billie Eilish last week. Rigor. I'm supposed to be the big expert now, huh? I mean, I, I, I got into JFK very late last night, and I like Billie <laughs> Eilish. I know she's 17 years old and makes songs that my daughters listen to. Listen to. And there's, you know, I, I don't know. Can you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, essentially, okay, why are we talking about Billie Eilish? To me, what is interesting about 
this singer in, in terms of the, the trajectory of her fame is that here she's just dropped her first real album, right, last week. She's only 17 years old. You would think that that would constitute a debut of sorts, but because of the internet age and the mm-hmm. age of Instagram mm-hmm. fame mm-hmm. that we're in, she actually has a huge following already. She had she did release an EP before. It's not her first real album, and she had plenty of YouTube streaming hits. Mm. If we had Chris Malanfi here, he could talk about you know crunching the numbers and how exactly pop stardom is different now than it was in the days of, say, Britney Spears, another teenage pop idol from decades past. Um, But the thing that really struck me, having been hearing Billie Eilish listened to by my now 13-year-old daughter in my house for years, is that all that happened is that old people are now aware of her, right? As a result of her having been now profiled in the New York Times, having this full-length album that's streaming on Spotify, and, you know, being someone that we're writing about and talking about, she's sort of slipped from that more ungraspable Instagram place of fame that is inaccessible to us, the olds, into a into a more mainstream place. And, uh, and because of the, not only because I think her music is really interesting and she's a beautiful voice, but because of the atypical pop star image that she projects, which mm. I think I talked about a little bit last week in my endorsement. I mean, to put it briefly, she is far from a pop tart, right? She wears sort of like baggy surgical scrubs. Um, she has blue or purple hair, appears to be sort of unmade up. Her videos have a sort of grotesque factor that she appears to be trying to challenge the viewer rather than to seduce the viewer, although some of her songs are about seduction and we can get into that. Anyway, because of her unusual self-presentation and unusual sound, I thought she was somebody worth talking about. And I think maybe we did start off by just listening to a, a song and maybe listen to some more later on as well. Great idea. Let's listen to a cut from When We All Fall Asleep, Where Do We Go, which is her to use old-fashioned language, her debut studio record. party's over, which to my mind is probably the best cut on this album. For the record, that's the the song that was playing when, as I recounted last week in my endorsement, I went into my daughter's room and said, are you listening to Kate Bush? And that's what that that arrangement and that kind of vocal style reminds me of. I mean, she's kind of an art rocker, right? She's got a lot of different styles feeding into what she's doing, some of which I probably don't even know the name of. But the thing that it made me think of was that sort of femme art rock of the 80s. Yeah, one of the things that's really exciting and interesting listening to this album is that it's so hard to place. Uh, And I think we should just all stipulate that we are among the olds uh, encountering this music that has been omnipresent for the youngs and the ways that they encounter music, which is on SoundCloud and on YouTube and on Spotify and does not require an album for one's encounters with it to exist and be real. She's not, uh, this is not Britney Spears pouncing onto our screens with pom-poms and her ponytails. Like, this is an established artist whose establishedness is only now becoming visible to the the uh, eyes of the over 40 set. Um, and it's been very fun to read, you know, millennial music critics encountering it and being like, oh, gosh, 
it's really hard to understand the youngs now that I'm an aging millennial. And I was like, oh, God, I didn't, I hadn't realized that the millennials were going to age. <laughs> we're going to have to keep hearing about their shit until they're as old as Mary Kay Place. <laughs> but anyway, um, I, it's interesting to listen to this and try to place it because it, it defies, it both defies placeability and sounds like the work of some artists we know. There's bits of it that sound like hip hop. There's bits of it that sound like art rock. There's bits of it that sound like kind of pop ingenues. It does, the, the comparison that Carl Wilson drew in his piece for Slate was to Lord, and there's a lot here that reminds the listener of Lord that there's kind of an ethereal indie girl quality to her phrasings and the way that she often sings, but the music seems to have kind of the grit and heft and muscle of uh, electronic pop music. And I liked a lot of it. I found myself slightly put off by all the performative whatnot. I understand that that is what being a musician is right now, but there's a bit of a self-consciousness about I'm... I'm the kind of person who this and that that felt uh, slightly tiresome. Not like I wouldn't have loved it, but I, I haven't quite figured out which of these songs I'm going to like add to my mega mix and listen to on repeat forever. Oh, yeah. I will definitely say that this is not one of those hard as a diamond albums where every song is as good as every other song. And mm-hmm. Carl Wilson really mentions that in his review of the album on Slate, which is generally positive, And he's definitely fascinated by the novelty of Billie Eilish. But there are some weak tracks on here and some strong tracks. And the one that we heard is, I would say, one of the two or three strongest. I mean, I'll, I'll give a, I'll give I mean, talk about like one man's opinion. But as music, I overhear a lot of music that Teen, teens listen to because I'm around teens all the time driving them you know all over Columbia County New York and Western Massachusetts all over Diane land basically and um, I really like this music and what I, I it seems to me and maybe I'm wrong that this dichotomy that we've harped on in the conversations we've had with Jody and Carl about you know an older more raucous paradigm of the artist as an auteur or author and a more pop paradigm where the producer is the auteur, the singer is often just a vehicle for someone else's songwriting and production values, and the whole thing comes as a kind of package and ascribing to it authorial intentions is probably sort of beside the point. It seems to me a lot of what my kids are listening to now that I respond to immediately is completely transcending that dichotomy. It is taking all of you know, the um, production values of pop, a lot of the ad- attitudinizing of, of hip hop, uh, you know, um, uh, and and attempting to make an authorial-like statement through the vocalizing and the writing. And I think that that's present in Ariana Grande, too. I mean, there's just things, something is going on in Ariana Grande's music that I didn't and, and never heard in Taylor Swift's music. And and this is an even more extreme example of it. I mean, she obviously is, is reminiscent of Lord. She's a little reminiscent in terms of posturing of Lana Del Rey and also a little bit in sound. But there's something ethereal and felt about the music at the same time. It's exquisitely produced popular music. That's And so it's like I can sit in a car and, and listen to this and it's speaking, it's saying something to me. Right, that popular music wasn't saying to someone like me trapped in a car with younger people three or four years ago. Am I picking up on something real? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, in, in terms of the production, it's worth mentioning that, and there may be some exceptions to this on this album, but in general, her music has been produced with her brother, who also co-writes some of these songs, who's 21. His name's Phineas. Uh, and it's, you know, in their in their bedrooms on their computers. So you definitely cannot argue that they are pop stars being formed by some sort of managerial group. You know, they're they're like two homeschooled kids in Los Angeles sitting around making weird sounds on their computers. And as Julia says, that does lend to a little bit of self-indulgence. There's samples from The Office in one song, which I found kind of charming. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a, a beginning where she takes out her Invisalign <laughs> and begins the album and announces that she's now removing her, you know, mouth mouth brace so she can sing. It's, it's, a, it's an album made by two kids and it sounds like it. But even if there is some Deadwood in there, doesn't that just lend to the DIY charm of it oh. all? This is the funny thing now, because it used to be, I mean, I, I like 20 years ago, I wrote a piece for, I don't know, the New York Observer, maybe about like bedroom pop, like the idea of indie, like a lot of indie rock coming out of bedrooms and that it was forming a genre and you could call it bedroom rock or whatever. And it's now there's just enough computing power on a desk that you can make something that is in fact DIY, but DIY, but in sound sounds as though it was done at some, you know, huge established sound factory, you know, corporate owned uh, studio. And so you can kind of get both of these elements, like people who are sort of sitting alone in their houses, wondering who the fuck they are and trying to puzzle out a self combined with the production values that 10 years ago would have required the backing of a major corporation to, you know, to, to, to make. Um, And the other thing, Julia, I wonder if there's something here Precocity seems to be a big part of the music that my kids are listening to. Now, obviously, they're teenage girls, and so other teenage girls speaking to them is going to be meaningful. But they listen to an inordinate number of music made by girls slash women who are under the age of twenty. Some of which, you know, is is very indie and you aren't likely to have heard of, and others like Billie Eilish and um, Girl in Red who've kind of blown up in various degrees. But there's this thing of of like kind of kids, is it the kids are growing up faster? They just have access to the means of distribution? Or there's just, I mean, I think that it is precocious. It's not just that it's popular and they're young. There's a maturity to, to this, there's a maturity to her vocalizing or singing. You know, she doesn't sound like a kid or she sounds like a kid who's been, doing a lot of thinking and a lot of like internal living in order to in order to sing like that what what do you think Julia am I on to something yeah it's interesting I mean I think part of what maybe we encounter in the music coming to it through you know the bedrooms of your children or through like okay this is the moment where I'm going to figure out who Billie Eilish is in my case um is that you're encountering someone who's actually very sophisticated about questions of persona and authenticity and how to perform a self and what it means to perform a self, like just the the kind of next levelness of what this generation of people, humans, has been exposed to and has to think about, like, we're all rubes compared to that. And so there is a sophistication about our modern media moment, I think, that feels funny coming out of the voices of women under 20 and I do love that about it and that you know for all that some of the posturing sounds postury and sounds young and sounds like someone figuring their stuff out which is totally a reasonable thing to be doing at 17 and she seems to be doing it with remarkable elan under lots of eyes um yeah I think there is something there that 
that is part of what is connecting. I'll also say, in addition to the kind of Kate Bush metaphor, it's just great to have a young pop star reject so many of the trappings of femininity in the way that she does. Like, I love the way she dresses. She wears these huge galumphing outfits. It's a little bit kind of raver cult. It's like whatever the 2019 version of raver culture is with the huge pants and the baggy sweatshirts and brightly colored hair. And there's uh, sort of a fuck you quality to her aesthetic that makes me happy. Yeah, I mean, and Julia, what you say makes me think again of the fact that, you know, if you're if you're between the ages of 14 and 22 right now, right in the middle of your life at a formative moment, the 08 financial crisis hit. And, you know, the social contract with 99% plus of this country was broken, but the social contract with the young was totally broken. And so there's a way in which young people, ironically, once again, are spokespeople for all of us, right? They don't have a future that they believe in, which is an intense experience for a young person in a relatively affluent culture to have. And it's produced a new strain of thoughtfulness, even in totally unapologetically pop media. And I think that's what I think I'm hearing in it. There's like a real like a real melancholy, I think, in a lot of the music my kids are listening to. Like a real sadness and a real sense that we're, we're fucking stranded. And by the way, throw into it global warming. I mean, I don't, like, I don't want to go like way too heavy, but, you know, the, you know, the sense that the future is dead because the planet is dying, the sense that the future is not beckoning to you as a young person is... That that that's some deep psychic shit there, and it's going to come out just in the way a seventeen-year-old with a modicum of self-consciousness is going to sing, and and I think that's what I'm hearing. I mean, I don't think that that's that's a stretch, but yeah. Well, talking about despair and melancholia, I was going to ask you guys what you thought of some of the heavy, heavy content on this. I mean, there were moments in this album that I thought, okay, my daughter's listening to that. That's mm-hmm. heavy, and uh, and one of those moments comes in the first song which is called bad guy and uh the chorus refers to some activity that's maybe a little bit questionable for a 17 year old to be singing about so you're a tough guy like you really rough guy just can't get enough guy just always so puff guy i'm that bad type make your mama sad type make your girlfriend mad type might seduce your dad type i'm the bad guy duh So yeah, make your mama sad type might seduce your dad type. It's the kind of thing that 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I mean, Britney Spears was singing far naughtier things than that, right? Um, but but now in our Me Too era, that one that one comes off as a little harsh, at least for a major release album. I can see it happening in a YouTube streaming song. But uh, but the fact that it's, it's implicitly being endorsed by you know whoever's signing off on this album was a little bit disturbing to me, as was the song Bury a Friend, which is a beautiful song, but which is all about suicidal ideation. Like that is the subject of the song. And and, uh, and so this is a 17-year-old working out their problems and also taking on personas. You know, I think the seduce your dad type is sort of a playful line in that song. Um, but I, I was just wondering if that struck the two of you as, you know, parents or as pop music listeners. I am persuaded by the argument that the music has to channel the inner lives of the young and it can do so without encouraging them to behaviors, blah, 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 blah. Like, I, th- I do think that there's, th- that, you know, people have talked about this in her music, especially you know, the suicidal ideation. And 
and Carl talks about it in his review that there's this is probably going to act more as a source of comfort than an intensifier of despair for young people. And I buy, I totally buy that argument. I hope so. I, I, I just I hope if she's interviewed about it and, and talks about it, that, you know, she makes clear that there's a difference between writing a song about something and, you know, endorsing it. Yeah, I agree. And I also think young people are just like they, they were born postmodernists. This generation, they know that there's post striking and, you know, they're not they're not suckered by the authenticity and by and large, you know. So I think, yeah, I think they're they're in control of that aspect of it, is my sense. I think there's a lot we have to learn from a public health perspective about how to responsibly cover suicide in the media and how a kind of corporation like Netflix should think about having a you know room full of grown-ups put together a show designed to exploit the attentions of teenagers like 13 Reasons Why. I think when you have an individual teenage artist putting her voice into the world, like that's different. There's just a different moral calculus there. She's, she's her job is to conjure and sing her truth and her lived experience and her performance of ideas about what it means to be a teen and a woman and a person now. And um, so the notion that like sh- she should get scolded in the way that the create the grown up creators of Thirteen Reasons Why should get scolded for their handling of suicide on their show, strikes me as off base. Mm. All right, well, communicate with us about Billie Eilish. Find us on Twitter or via email. We want to hear what you have to say. And now let's endorse Dana. What do you have? So I think after the critic John Berger died, we talked about him on this show, right? Maybe not in the context of a segment, but we we did a little goodbye to him or a, a roundup in endorsements. Yeah, or I endorsed. Right? I endorsed the, one of his books on painters. This just a great book. He's mainly known as as an art critic. Uh, he wrote a book called Ways of Seeing. That's a very very commonly used text in in art classes, which I think I read in college. Um, this is just a great way of sort of shaking up the way that you look at the Western canon. And uh, and John Berger could just could just write about anything. And so in the midst of some internet rabbit hole search that I believe began with P.T. Barnum, I wound up reading the PDF completely online of an essay called Why Look at Animals by John Berger. Uh, The publication date I see is 2009, but that might have been in a, a later collection. It reads like something from a little bit earlier than that. And Why Look at Animals is just this really, really incredible essay, maybe about 20 pages long or so, about uh, the, the human's relationship to the animal and how it's changed in industrial times. And he goes through zoos. You'll never want to go to a zoo again if you if you already weren't depressed by zoos after reading this. Sort of the history of zoos and colonialism in relationship to animals, performing animals on the stage in the vaudeville era, B.T. Barnum-type stories. And really fascinatingly, he gets into children's books and the history of representing clothed animals, you know, the, the way that we as industrialized humans come into the world of animals through story, right? We often know what an artificial giraffe looks like before we ever see a real giraffe. This is what it is to be a person in the the modern world in relation to animals. And uh, this essay just goes really deep. It's historically informed, but it's also very uh, emotionally resonant. And it just makes you think about childhood and your own children and reading them books about animals. And there's just nowhere it doesn't go. So uh, so Why Look at Animals by John Berger, wonderful essay, is my endorsement for the week. Oh, that's great. I think the book that I um, endorsed by Berger was Portraits, where he just goes through from like the Chauvet paintings up through Basquiat, all the artists that have meant something to him. And they're super highly personalized, very short, but astute, acute, 
essays on on these artists, right. each, each one of which just eminently worth reading. I mean, it's something about him. He's not, even though he knows so much about art history, he's yeah. not an art historian, yeah. right? He doesn't write as an art historian at all. He writes as a human being encountering images yes. in, in the world, and uh, and he's just he's he will be missed. He really did something that nobody else quite did. I was going to endorse something else this week, but prompted by Steve's shout out of The Good Place as a modern television comedy that actually breaks through and makes you want to pay attention to it and and marvel at its unique artistry and point. Uh, If you love The Good Place and have been thinking, gosh, I wish I liked anything as much as The Good Place, kind of miss The Good Place. When is there going to be another season of The Good Place? Uh, I would send you to The Good Place, The Podcast, which is a podcast about the show. I believe that they released it with the launch of the either second or third season. Uh, It's hosted by Mark Evan Jackson, who plays Sean on the show and is sort of deliciously tart and Shawnee. And he brings in typically, it changes a little bit, but an actor and a writer for each episode and grills them about that episode, the performance, the philosophical questions uh, that it raises. It's largely a show about how great Mike Schur is, but not the creator of that show. But it's somehow not grating. You just get a like multi-dimensional portrait of ev- from everybody who's ever worked with Mike Schur being like, I'd follow that guy up a mountain and down a cliff. Gosh, that guy is smart. Wow, that guy knows a lot about philosophy. That guy sure knows a lot about television comedy. Holy moly, that guy is great. But um, it's just fun. It's like you get to steep in the world and think through what it was like to make the show. And I have found it to be an enjoyable uh, little dropper of information and delight to put into my ears. Very cool. Um, all right. This week I am endorsing a short book length essay by Margot Jefferson. It's called On Michael Jackson. Uh, in the wake of the death of Michael Jackson, I wanted to read something critical, authoritative, sensitive about him. And I turned to Jody Rosen, who said, ah, have you ever read this? And he turned out to be completely right. It's a model for the the short book length essay or the long essay in book form. Or, and it goes through, you know, it's it's has no pretense to original reporting. It is an act of criticism. She read two or three authoritative biographies, watched it, or more. I mean, she may have run, read a ton. She cites two centrally. And then she, you know, watched all the, you know, available video clips and, you know, and just thought really hard about what that life story is and how to tell it in her own particular critical way, getting at the inputs of abuse and 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 a highly stage managed and in some ways claustrophobic upbringing, the relationship with the brothers, obviously with his father, with his mother, like what went into creating this person who was attempting to be the personification of a certain form of non-adult innocence who turned himself into a kind of human gargoyle of sorts. And now it's been revealed as almost certainly was a, a complete monster. And like all works of cultural criticism, it's like Michael Jackson is only that famous if he's reflecting something back to the billions of people who respond to his music. I mean, you know, something in the interior of all of us is being vibrated, you know, to life by the sounds of that music and the star image surrounding the person who made it. And it's just, it's just an exemplary act of criticism, you know, getting at, getting at what those, what those things are. Uh, it's beautifully written. It's just exemplary. I, I just was really, really enjoyed it. It's short, which is a fucking virtue in all things. So anyway, Margot Jefferson on Michael Jackson.
You know what? Jody Rosen recommended that same book to me, and I read it for the same reason. Yeah. He runs through all of our DNA, <laughs> and it is a really exemplary piece of criticism. Yes. He recommended it to me because I was starting a book on a famous, <laughs> on a celebrity, you know, and I was saying, like, how do you write about someone that has been so written about and so thought about? And uh, and he just said, you got to read Margot Jefferson yeah. and Michael Jackson. Nailed yeah, so it. it was right after he died that I read it. Yeah, amazing. All right. Anyway, um, uh, thank you, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, that's slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. Our production assistant is Alex Barish. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch for Dana Stevens and uh, Julia Turner. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. peek at this week's slate plus segment if you want to hear the whole thing plus ad free podcasts join us at slate.com slash culture plus i mean a tapas bar in galicia traditionally means a place where you go and you buy the beer for a euro i mean it's some super cheap glass of beer and then they bring you free food they, and and each place the old-fashioned way was each place along the promenade had a different food that they would give you. So over the course of the night, you go into one and you get your tortilla, and then you go into the next one and you get the empanada, and then you go into the one that specializes in peanuts, and then you go into the one that specializes, and you go down the line and you get a full meal, drink a ton of beer, shit ton of beer, you're only paying for the beer, um, and you walk it off.